Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Today is Dr. William Warden, and our topic is Families Coping with Loss. Dr. J. William Warden is a leader in the field of grief counseling and grief therapy. His research and clinical work span a period of over 40 years. He is affiliated with Harvard Medical School and Rosemead Graduate School of Psychology. He is also a co-investigator of the Harvard Child Bereavement Study based at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is the author of Personal Death Awareness, Children in Grief, When a Parent Dies, and is co-author of Helping Cancer Patients Cope. His book, Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy, a handbook book for the mental health practitioner, is widely used around the world today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Warden. Good morning. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great having you on. We have gotten, uh, gotten some wonderful emails and questions that people have sent in, and, and we're excited, very excited about the show. Um, we want, I wanted to start out by asking you how you got in the field of grief and loss. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, was uh, doing um, a workshop with uh, uh, Dr. Kubler Ross at the uh, University of Chicago uh, Continuing Education, and uh, Weissman and I had just begun the Omega Project at uh, at Mass General, which was a study of uh, life threatening illness and life threatening behavior. Anyway, we decided that. In addition to having a workshop on how to work with uh, terminally ill patients and their families, uh, it would be good to do something in grief. So way back in uh, you know the uh, the mid seventies, we began these workshops to train social workers, nurses, physicians, psychologists, and so forth how to work with grief. So that's and there was nothing going on. on at that time, right? There was nothing. This was the very first uh, the very first effort. We limited to a hundred people. And, uh, they came for a couple days for continuing ed. And then we I did a combination of trying to help them explore their own losses and how that might impact on working with bereaved individuals, but also then to do some skill building and, uh, in small groups and so forth. Very successful, so we offered it once. There were over a hundred, so we limited to a hundred and then offered a second time that year. And then for about the next five or six years, we offered it twice a year. And uh, because it was the only uh, program of its kind at that time. Now, what what made you connect with the idea of Kubler Ross? Did you have anything in your past life that you know in your background, or <laughs> I haven't explored my past life yet. <laughs> right, I'm open to that. I hear Oprah's doing that kind of thing these days. But uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> <clears throat> no, no, no. Uh, people have come up to me after long, you know, formerly in terms of when I first was in the area, you know, wanting some kind of a of a lost history. But it it, it really hasn't been uh, particularly, uh, and I'm not sure why. But it 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 certainly the the area has certainly fit my you know uh, personal interests as well as my professional interests. So, uh, but no, uh, no you know, major losses in my early life, too. And and what did you think? I know you were working with Kubler-Ross. What did you think about the fact that her stage model, which was meant for people that were terminally ill, became a model that people were looking towards that were grieving? Yeah, that's kind of odd how that happened. <clears throat> but it did happen, and... uh 
you know, in the, what what Weissman and I did at Mass General after her book came out in the, I think it was about 1970, 69, 70, uh, began to look to see whether people who were dying uh, did go through the various stages that she'd outlined in her book. And we did it very carefully and systematically on uh, consecutive admissions uh, to the Mass General that were terminal and just found that it just didn't apply. And yet it's interesting to me, because people don't go in series through, you know, these stages, as many people have talked about and written about. Uh, but it's interesting how that particular model is still widely used. It's incredible how, it's so fascinating to hear you say this because people really believe that. You know, oh, yeah. I, I still hear them talking about it. I hear professionals using it with bereaved people and then I hear the bereaved people saying, you know, I'm, I haven't done anger yet. You know? I know, or, and it, it's taken so literally and uh, it, is, it is of concern to me, uh, and that's why when I wrote the book Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy, uh, which came out of those uh, University of Chicago workshops, I, I approached the task of mourning because it seemed to me that tasks that need to be worked through, accomplished, whatever, uh, that that was a much more dynamic and fluid kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's scary to think, okay, I'm in... The stage of depression, and then all of a sudden you get angry and you think, uh-oh, what's happening? Anger is an earlier stage. What's, what's wrong with me? Whereas your model, like you said, it's fluid. You go back and forth between feelings. And yeah, I think so. I mean, I tried to make it that way because that's sort of the reality of my experience after a loss as well as, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the individuals that I, and families that I would work with. So it is a very fluid kind of thing, and a, a task can be, uh, you know, accomplished at one level, at one point, and then later on go back and revisit it, reworked, and so forth. And I think that's just sort of the way life is. And Can you uh, give us a quick rundown before we go to break of the tasks? And then I've got some emails that I think are going to fit very okay, well sure, into this. sure, sure. Let me just do it real quickly. Uh, uh, it was interesting. My daughter said to me the other day, I can't remember the tasks. <laughs> you need a table, Dad, in your new book. Okay, so uh, I heard her anyway. Yeah, they're just things that, 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 that need to happen. Sometimes it's very easy, depending on the death circumstances and who died and so forth, and other times much more difficult. The first task is to accept the reality of the loss. That is, you've first of all got to believe that the person is gone and is not coming back, at least in the same way they were. And, you know, a lot of my uh, new grad students, they think, well, of course she knows he's dead, you know, she went to the funeral and so forth, but it's much, much more subtle. I have a, a woman in one of my bereavement groups who every morning she reaches over to her husband's side of the bed, he's been dead about six months, and to see if he's there. Uh-huh. She knows he's not going to be there, but there's that hope, you see. So if I don't change the closet or empty my kid's room or whatever it is, they may okay. come back and they will need those toys. How many of them are there? There are four. Okay. And I, as I said uh, before the break, I think that tasks are useful because they're much more dynamic and fluid. You know, I want to I say before we get into this, for people who just tuned in, we were talking about the Kubler-Ross model, that anger and denial, depression, acceptance kind of thing, that it really, uh, Bill's done some studies on it, right? And it, people really don't move in that direction, not but at, it's you. Not at Mass General, yeah. And we were, you know, we had a large grant from the National Institute of Mental Health uh, you know, back in the late 60s, well, actually for 18 years, uh, and, and looking, you know, to see, uh, for example, denial 
just to pick one of them, is an intermittent phenomenon. I mean, some people deny early, oh, they must have gotten the wrong x-ray, you know, it can't be happening, it isn't me. And others, uh, there's no early denial, but it may be later that it comes in there. So, and for some, there is none. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an individual kind of thing. And so that first, let's go through those first stages. I mean, the four stages then. We were talking about the first one. Pass, pass, I mean, pass. I'm sorry. Now I call You know, maybe we ought to call it this. (laughs) We're getting back to it. Okay, so let's talk about those tasks. Okay. The first one was to accept the reality of the loss. And it's a subtle thing, you know, as I said, uh, uh, you know, to really wrap my mind around the fact that my loved one, my child, whoever, is not coming back as they, as they were. And, uh, that takes a long time for, for people. And, uh, uh, one of my patients, her son was flunked out of college just after her husband died, went to Europe and came back from Europe after a year there, uh, went over a cliff in a car and, uh, it was killed with, himself and another friend of his, mm. and for 18 months she went around not believing that he was dead, but that he was still in Europe like he had been the mm-hmm. preceding, you know. Now, now, did she see the body? She didn't. This is an important piece. She, she, she was advised not to see the body by a family friend who did identify the body of her uh, 17-year-old son, and she said to me many, 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 many months later, I wish I had seen the body. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are other audience members who are feeling exactly that. What would you say to her? What did you say to her? And what can you say to them? Well, there's nothing, you know, at that point, there was nothing she could do, obviously. But when I have somebody, if I'm working in the emergency room, and I have somebody come in and say their, their, their child is, is killed in a motorcycle crash. This happened just two weeks ago. And... Uh, if I'm talking with them, working with them, I might ask them if they would like to see their son's body or, you know, in this mm-hmm. case, often a male. And, uh, you know, there's some hesitation. And, you know, I leave the choice up to them. But I have found myself encouraging them, saying, you know, I've had people come back to me later and wish they had have done okay, that. Okay, so our audience is are, are those people who wish they had seen it. What do you have to say to them? Well, there's just really nothing they can do yeah. at that point. But I think that one of the things that this whole area of memorialization, of finding ways to remember my, if in case of it's a child, uh, remember my child, uh, you know, as part of the grieving process. But the, the point is that it's very difficult if, if I don't see the body, uh, and then there's different religion and, and cultural traditions there, but I, I, I'm I'm very much positive for that. Well, I think even if it's a, a part of the body yeah. that can, it's tastefully displayed, because sometimes somebody's very very you know broken up from right. an accident, but if there can be a part that's tastefully displayed for the family, yeah. I think and so, what I want to say to our audience out there is, what we're saying is, it could be a little more difficult for you, but recognize that. Recognize maybe you'll stay into that. Uh, you know, it'll take you maybe a little longer than other people, and, and be aware of that. It could, so yeah. It, maybe it, we can do rituals and memorials around the event somehow to honor the person that died, because there's also the idea that, I mean, I work with 9-11 families, and a lot of them didn't have any choices. There was no body to see. So there's also yeah. that as well. Some people don't have that option. Yeah, and this is one of the things I just wrote about in the fourth edition of the, of the book that's going to be coming out this fall, is that... Um, there, there are these uh, losses uh, which are, are ambiguous. That is, uh, you don't have a body. And sometimes and, people don't even know if they're missing. Right, exactly. For years. 
we saw this so often uh, during the uh, the uh, Vietnam era right. war, where uh, you know they thought they were dead, but then on several occasions people came back. You know, many years later. But I think one of the pieces. Let me just give you a quick. I was asked to work with some of the families after the Korean airliner was shot out of the sky. Uh, a number of years ago, and there were no bodies retrieved from that uh, event, and it was very difficult for some of the families families I worked with uh, to really believe that they knew on one level the person was dead, but on the other hand, they didn't, and it was very helpful when the South Korean government put up a monument with the names of those people on there so that some of those families could go back and see that, and it kind of crystallized it. Uh, you know, they knew they were dead on the one hand, but uh, this sort of made it, uh, you know, much more tangible and, right. and, and concrete. So getting, uh, so our acceptance is our uh, first task. The first then task. We... Yeah, yeah, to, to believe that it happened. Right. And again, sometimes many kinds of deaths are not difficult to believe, mm-hmm. uh, but some are, and particularly these ambiguous losses that I that I mentioned. And the second task is to process the pain of grief. Now, I wrote this very broadly, the pain of grief, because the the pain from a grieving loss situation can be very, very broad. You know, most people think of sadness, but it also includes things like anger and guilt and shame and loneliness. And so my point is that these feelings need to be processed. Uh, And if they're not... Two things can happen. One, they can go underground and they can reappear in some later loss, which I call uh, a delayed grief reaction, or what is uh, equally problematic is that they can develop a person's pain, not experience, can, can then manifest itself as some kind of somatic bodily mm-hmm. kind of manifestation. Interesting. <clears throat> well, I want to, um, we've got an email here. It just came up from somebody named Joan. Thank mm-hmm. you, Joan, uh, for sending in an email. And, uh, she said, my developmentally challenged daughter died last year of an infection. People seem to think that she is better off in heaven. It makes me angry. She had the smile of an angel. And I wanted to ask Dr. Warden, how do I deal with my anger? And what are his thoughts on this? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful to some people to express that anger directly to the person, you know. Uh, mm. And, uh, I mean, I was thinking about a a patient of mine from Boston whose husband died suddenly, left her with five teenage boys. And, uh, you know, she she had to do stuff that he would always do, and she was very, very angry. But she said to me, how can I be angry? You know, uh, he didn't want to die. He just had cancer. But the point is she was angry, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. And she needed to be able to uh, identify that anger and then to find an appropriate place to target it. I mean, you know, sometimes kicking the cat can be helpful, uh, or you know. How about this idea that Joan put in that uh, her daughter's developmentally challenged, and people—I think people sometimes think, "Oh, you're better off." You oh, know? yeah, yeah, exactly, and uh, that's uh, obviously not so, you know, because Joan and her daughter, you know, had a really you know special relationship there, and uh, and plus, it's a full-time job taking care of a developmentally challenged. You're out of a job too. Absolutely, absolutely. I've seen this, you know, happen where, say, somebody's had a a child with with leukemia or some other, you know, chronic long-term, you know, uh, caring disorder, and they've spent, you know, most of their life, and then the child dies, and uh, what do I do now, you know? And I have to sort of redefine who I am, 
which is part of that third task of mourning that we're moving toward, which is trying to find out who am I now without my, you know, dead child or my dead husband or, or whatever. You know, I think that I, I think that third stage is so key because I think a lot of people task, don't please, recognize task, it. Task, please. Task, mom. Task. I mean, I'm sorry, Task. I want to keep saying stages. I think that third stage of who am I now is really important because our parents tell us and people tell us, particularly parents say, there was before and then there's after and I'm not the same person anymore. But then who am I? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly, and uh, so I took that third, after you deal with the feelings, and that, that can take time, it, the feelings can come back, we revisit it, anniversaries are particularly, as you all know, times for feelings to come back in spades and need to be, you know, refelt and, and so forth. In the third task uh, of mourning, I, I write it the following way, to, <clears throat> to ex- Excuse me. To experience a world without the deceased, and there are three pieces to that. Real quickly, one is uh, to be able to experience the external adjustments. You know, live, for a widow, say living in an empty house, uh, dealing as a single parent, those kinds of things. I call those external adjustments. The internal adjustments. The second part of this third task of mourning has to do with how the person's sense of self has changed. Not just as a widow or a, or a bereaved parent, but, but who am I now in terms of my self-esteem, in terms of my self-efficacy, the ability to, you know, make a difference in terms of what happens in right. my life. And those are really, uh, you know, some challenges. Now, some, some... Give us our fourth stage because we're going to have to go to break and then we'll come oh, back oh, to these when we get okay. back from break. The fourth one is the one... I mean, task. Heidi, you know what? I think this is key that I'm doing this because it is. this is how ingrained it is, yeah, exactly. the, the Kubler-Ross model. Well, it is, and and uh, the fourth one I have struggled with over the four editions of the book, and here's the latest way that I've written it, uh, to find an enduring connection with the deceased while embarking on a new life, adjusting to a world without the deceased. Mm-hmm. Now, there are external adjustments, you know, getting used to sleeping in an empty bed or, or fixing meals for one or whatever it is. Those are external adjustments. Internal adjustments are... Who am I now? That that's the part. Yeah. In other words, how has the death affected my sense of myself? And that's you know, we have a, um, a person who is very much in touch with us on the blog and and mm-hmm. information. Her name's Kim, and Kim uh, lost her only child, uh, two and a half years old, and she uh, she is so clear about struggling after two and a half years. Who am I now without a, a, a mommy? Because, who is right. a mommy without a child? Yes, exactly. Am I still a mother? Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's the kind of thing. And then the third part of this third, uh, not to get convoluted, but the third part of adjusting to a world is what I call spiritual adjustments. That is the whole meaning-making uh, you know, process. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Where was God in this whole thing? And so certain deaths can really affect a person's sense of, of the predictability of the world and so on and so forth. Not every death does that, you know. When my mother died a few years ago at 96, there was no challenge there. She was an old lady. She had a great full life, and so there's no spiritual challenge at that point. But for some, when you, especially when you use a, lose a child or, uh, or somebody suddenly, a death out of season, uh, there's a lot of spiritual meaning making. Of, of course, I think even if you lose an older mother or dad, who am I now without my parents? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the one, I'm the next, you know, I'm the, because I've lost both my parents too, and I think there is a, a challenge there, a, you know, a question. It's not, I don't think you suffer. 
you know, like yeah, I did no, when I, I lost the child. But I did wonder, who am I now? Yeah, exactly. And I mentioned at her funeral that we're now orphans. And yeah, right, exactly. It didn't go over too big, but, you know, uh, <laughs> exactly. that's how I was coping with my grief. But, right. <laughs> you know, kind right. of goofy. And the final one here is is one that I think we need to share with the audience, um, and that is how do I find some kind of enduring connection with the loved one I lost while being able to embark on a new life for mm-hmm. myself? And this is the the fourth task of mourning is important and necessary and it is a real struggle. The idea of continuing bonds, as you mentioned earlier in this program, uh, came out of our Harvard Child Bereavement Study. Phyllis Silverman and I were studying uh, 125 kids from 70 families over time after the death of a parent. And one of the things we noticed was that these kids, a lot of them, stayed connected to their dead parent through dreaming, feeling watched by them, thinking about them, keeping things that belong to the dead person, and so forth. So out of that observation, along with Benny Class, who's well-known to your people from the Compassionate Friends group, uh, we began to coin this term, continuing bonds. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, what year a book was came it, out. What, what, I know that the book on, that uh, Silverman wrote was in, what, 96? Is that correct? About that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but, but that... that the impetus for a lot of that in the book, uh, yeah, Silverman, uh, Nickman, and uh, Steve Nickman, who was our psychiatrist mm-hmm. on the project, and Phyllis Silverman, and wrote class. this excellent book called Continuing Bonds. And uh, it, it goes to show that the old Freudian notion of disengaging from the person who died so that one can move on with life mm-hmm. uh, is, not as, uh, is not a valid uh, uh, um, model to think, think about it, took, it. I think it took a while to, to, for people in the academic world to catch on to this concept because it wasn't until 2007 that Death Studies devoted an entire journal to continuing bonds, and I'm one of the authors on one of the articles, and it was so exciting yes. to know that the entire journal was going to be devoted to something that you had studied in, you know, 96, over 10 years ago. Well, things, uh, things move slowly in and what, <laughs> Yeah, but what I love right now is we okay. are bringing this to the general public. Right, exactly. And we are talking about these concepts that have been floating around in the grief world mm-hmm. with the academics, and we're bringing it here. Well, I wanted to uh, cover a few emails here uh, for our audience now that we've looked at these tasks. And uh, one is from Ron, and Ron is age 55, and he says, My 30-year-old son died of cancer seven months ago. He was married and had a family. I keep thinking I'm recovering, and then I just fall apart and slide back. Is this normal? Oh, I think so, yeah. I mean, I think this is getting into that stage thing. He thinks he's going to progress. Right, exactly, and it really is very, very cyclical. I mean, there are times when I'm doing better. There are times when I'm doing less well. And one of the things about grief is it it can just hit you, blindside you, I mean, even, you know, months and, and it can years be, It can have a smell or a sound. Absolutely. Or, you know. I, I, was in, I was in Filene's department store and uh, heard a sound or, or heard music uh, one time and, and just broke out in tears. Why? Because a friend of mine 
had died suddenly, and that particular song I associate with his friend, and, you know, it didn't last a long time, but it was something I was not expecting, you know, going through Filene's department store in Boston. You know, I think you just made a key point. It didn't last a long time. Yeah. I think that's what happens. You do go back. It's been my experience after Scott died that I did slide back, but it didn't last as long. Yeah, and let me just give you a quick uh, 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 quote from a, a the, the member of the woman that I mentioned whose son went over the cliff and she didn't see the body and it mm-hmm. took a long time for her to believe that he was gone. She she had struggles because she lost both the husband and the son in a in a short period of time, and she came to me once after a couple years and said, uh, you know, uh, something like it it doesn't come back. As frequently now as it did, meaning the you know the pangs of grief. But when it does come back, she said to me, and here's the point: I can remember the in between times better. Ah, and I thought that's so profound. Yeah, because she was still two years after the death, the, the second death, you know, having these. But she said when they come back. I can still remember the in-between times better, which you couldn't do originally. Right. I mean, she was just which overwhelmed is, by Which is important. Yeah, overwhelming. It can be mm-hmm. frightening. And especially, I think, uh, sometimes, I've talked with t- about teenagers. Uh, they're sometimes afraid to express all that grief because they, you know, they're worried. They are afraid that they can't get back. Well, and then parents get worried, Bill, that the teens aren't, their teens aren't grieving. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what you'd say to them because so many parents come to us and say, our teen is not, we don't think they're grieving. They're not talking to us about what's happening, and we're well, worried. Yeah, and they're, you know, the, one of the nice things about the Silverman-Worden study that we did at Harvard is that uh, we found that there was a lot of room for individual differences. Some kids that didn't seem, I'm talking about adolescents particularly, mm-hmm. some adolescents who didn't seem to be grieving were, but they were very selective to whom they were talking about their dead parent. In this case, they were all parents who died. And... Uh, uh, and some of them were really doing it rather privately. Uh, I remember one kid that used to stop by the cemetery where his dad was buried on his way home from school. Now, the family didn't know about that. You know, he shared it with us as part of the right. the, the, interview, the interview. But um, So there's a lot of room for individual differences. However, we did find in the Harvard study that those families who could, as a family, talk about the dead person together uh, did better over time. That is, there, there is some value in terms of sharing the grief. Okay, uh, now, if you're a family that is having difficult sharing, you're out there, you're saying, I'm going to uh, a group. I think we, we have an email here, if I can, I can mm-hmm. see it, where a man is saying that his wife says that he, has, he needs to go to group. She goes to group and talks about it. She thinks he needs to go to group and talk about it, but he uh, thinks he's doing fine. So what about that? You know, you're saying families who can talk about it do better. So what if I'm out there and I want my family to talk about it, but they don't want to talk about it? Well, they, it sounds like uh, he doesn't want to talk about it with a group, and this right. is very common in my experience doing hospice groups with men. Uh, women are more likely to want emotional uh, sharing kinds of groups. Men are, are more skittish about that kind of thing, but... I don't think even if he did go to the group, his talking about it at the group would be as healthy as if somehow this woman who wrote you could somehow facilitate a discussion about whoever it was that died in that family, including, you know, other family members. I don't know who died in that family. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember who it was? It was actually a daughter killed a by daughter. a drunk driver last year. Ooh, down. 
Yeah. Uh, but there are other kids, maybe, you think? Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, he just says she, yeah, she's just going to a support group. His wife thinks he should go. She says, I definitely need a support group in, t- in order to really grieve. Is this yeah. true? And support groups are, are, are fine, but maybe the support group can give her some clues as how to bring that back into the family. Yeah. How about how about therapy? What's your thought on that? Grief therapy. Well, I think grief therapy is good for people who are having some kind of complicated, uh, what I'm calling in the book, complicated bereavement reaction. Either the grief goes on and on for years and doesn't seem to come to an end. The person feels stuck. Therapy's good there. Therapy's good for somebody who has a delayed grief reaction. They didn't grieve enough early on, and then later on they're having an enormous response to some later loss. It can be helpful there, and it can also be helpful to somebody who develops anxiety disorders or depressive, major depressive disorder, or whatever, some kind of psychiatric problem. Their therapy can be not only helpful, but I think it's the only kind of intervention. If you if you have a major depression, I'm not sure that going to just a, a garden variety a grief group is going to be the helpful kind of thing there. Now, now, Bill, you said women like emotional sharing groups, which I agree with you. What kind of groups work for men? For men? Well, let me tell you, it's interesting you should raise it. We tried all kinds of things. I, 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 I fancy myself to be a little creative. So we, we tried all kinds of butch activities for men, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Monday night football to get them come out. <laughs> and, you know, it, none of them worked. And one day I'm standing in my office, uh, which is right uh, uh, overlooking the Charles River in Boston, and I suddenly thought, now isn't this silly why I haven't thought of this? Men will come if we offer them something uh, that has to do with problem solving. And in the Harvard study, most of these men were not good single parents. They didn't have the training, the skills, and so forth. So we started offering groups for men to teach them how to be better single parents, and they came. You oh, see what I mean? They didn't want emotional support, but they sure as heck wanted to know how to be a better, you know, single dad to uh, to their kids. So, so I love, yeah, you know, I like what you're saying because I'm thinking of the women that are listening to the show right now. Mm-hmm. And Bill's saying, do it yourself and and bring it to your family. You know, don't try to force people to go. I think that's better. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's just like uh, uh, couples therapy, you know. Uh, and if uh, if the husband comes into couples therapy. You know, kicking and screaming, <clears throat> he may come one visit, and I like to try to snooker him in from that point. But it doesn't, it doesn't always work. By snooker, I mean you know, uh, mm-hmm. get get him to uh, see the value of of working with the wife as a as a couple. But um, but I'm telling you, as soon as we started, Monday night football didn't do it. But as soon as we started offering those skill building, you know, how to cook. You know how to manage this, that, and the other thing. Really practical things. Uh, very yeah. practical things, because men. You know, we we took um, uh, consecutive deaths from the greater Boston area, different communities, and so we had a really good sample. And <clears throat> what we found was that very few of these men could be a single parent. They just didn't know how to do it. If 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 a mother, if a father dies and the mother's left. Not a piece of cake, but really easier. See what I mean? Because meals can be on the table, uh, bedtimes, homework assignments, and so forth. Those keep consistent, which really redounds to the benefit of the children. But when mom dies and dad's left as a single parent, I'm telling you, uh, they're lucky to have meals on the table, let alone on time. Uh, one uh, teen girl was going to bed about 11, 11.30. Her dad said, oh, you're going to bed so early. 
Well, because <laughs> he was lonely. But, right. you know, his mom had been there. She said, the homework's not done, 10 o'clock, go to bed, you get up early and finish the homework. You want to talk about uh, the idea for our audience that it isn't, uh, I hope you've gotten the idea from this, that it's not the stages of grief. You don't move through the denial and anger, and you're supposed to keep consecutively going through, because we really wanted to point that out to you, because I know people are very concerned about backsliding and that kind of thing. So, uh, And also that there are tasks that you can go through, but those tasks aren't consecutive, are they, Bill? No, no. They can be reworked, and uh, several tasks can be worked on at the same time. And also uh, kids with their different age groups, a 7-year-old is going to deal with it differently. I was just talking to a woman a few minutes ago who was telling me that uh, her daughter who is was four when her sister died, is now eight, and she's reprocessing it. Right, and she's exactly. also concerned that her mother's going to die. Yes, and this is an interesting thing, uh, because out of, in, the, in the Harvard study, and we following these 125 kids along with 125 who aren't bereaved, and we found that one year after the death of a parent, oh, half of the 50% of these kids still were frightened and anxious about the safety of the surviving parent. It was much larger figure than it was four months after the parent died. And I think the reason is that as they go through that first year of grieving, they realize, I've only got one parent. And mm-hmm. so, and, then, and then, of course, there's the idea that as you get older, you understand reversibility and that people die and, and they, you know, yes. what death means. Yes, exactly. And you need a certain, as you indicate, a certain cognitive and emotional level of development to really understand, you know, about... Uh, and when we went to break, we were talking a little bit about the family shake-up. I almost think of it as like I used to put chicken in a bag with uh, flour and salt and shake it up, you know, and yeah, then cook it, and, boy, you've got the family in there. You're shaking them up. Uh-huh. Yeah, it really – and you, you – you, there, there needs to be the reallocation of roles, and sometimes this is easy and people pick up the slack – but other times it isn't. And one of the things that we found in the Harvard study was it is so unhelpful to have a, uh, like say dad dies, and have an uncle say to the oldest male in the family, the oldest boy, now you've got to be the, you know, the head of the family. Dad's gone and you're the oldest. This can be a horrible, horrible legacy to, 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 to leave with a, with a, with a young man. But also we found other in the stu- others in the study who took on that ascription themselves, you know, they said, now dad is gone, I've got to do it. So, um, you know, the helpful thing is to be able to talk about that so that mother can say, no, we don't expect that you're going to take care of your little brothers. Or yeah, because people have a lot of ideas and the, the, that if not expressed, they have yes. these rituals and do these certain things. Well, um, it's almost time to close, and I wanted to ask you, do you have any special comments you are highly yeah, let me, in? Yeah, I'd like to just, uh, uh, well, we've talked about this four task of mourning, which is really tough for a lot of people and especially tough for parents who've lost children. And, uh, you know, how do I find an enduring connection with my dead child while, somehow enabling me to go on and and live my life. And this was a woman who had a real struggle with this thing, with this with this task, and she she uh, wrote the following which I thought was so poignant. Let me just it's just a couple sentences okay. to say. Um, she said only recently have I begun to take notice in life things in life that are still open to me. You know things that can bring me bring me pleasure. 
I know that I will continue to grieve for Robbie for the rest of my life and that I will keep his loving memory alive. But life goes on, and like it or not, I'm a part of it. Lately, there have been times when I notice how well I seem to be doing on some project at home or even taking part in some activity with friends. So this is a woman who's just emerging from that that struggle of, you know, I want to keep my child's memory with me, but also they're gone and I'm alive, and how do I then move forward? Mm-hmm. Not an easy task, but and it's one that sometimes comes many years later, as uh, <clears throat> as you indicated. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's, well, my it's pleasure. A great Thanks show. for the invitation. And, uh, yeah, we've been talking with William Warden on Families Coping with Loss, and it's time to close our show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 